Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, the editor of UN Dispatch, and we have an interesting program today. I have on the line Douglas Ollivant, uh, who is a specialist in Iraq policy. He served uh, in Iraq uh, as a military officer and then guided Iraq policy in both the Bush and Obama administrations from the National Security Council. And I wanted to talk to Douglas because, you know, at least from where I sit, Iraq seems to be falling apart. It seems that every other day there is news of scores more people killed in some sort of bombing or attack. Mostly, it seems, that these attacks are perpetrated against the Shia population, but not exclusively. Uh, But regardless, it seems that Iraq is descending into this unrelenting spiral of violence. What's worse is that you don't see this being spoken about on most cable news programs every day, nor do you see it on the headlines of major news programs. This is really sort of falling under the media's radar, and it is also slipping as a policy priority for uh, policymakers in, in government. So what follows is an in-depth conversation about the situation in Iraq, a look at U.S. policy towards Iraq and what it might mean for when the U.S. withdraws next year uh, from Afghanistan, Uh, and, uh, you know, the whole wider regional context of uh, this violence in Iraq and and sort of the implications for Syria. Here's Douglas Ollivant. So, you know, I wanted to touch base with you and and speak to you because it seems uh, as if for the last several months now, uh, there has been this just unrelenting wave of violence. I mean, every other day, it seems like I'm reading about scores of people killed in in bombings uh, in Iraq, mostly sectarian in nature. Uh, And it hasn't quite gotten sort of the media coverage that, you know, I would expect it to get. Perhaps it's this steady, slow drip more than the uh, sort of one or two fantastic, in a, in a fantastic in a bad way, uh, attack. So, I, you know, I was hoping to ask you to sort of maybe put this wave of violence that, that, that Iraq seems to be experiencing into some sort of context for, for me, for listeners, sort of how, how should we understand what's happening right now? Sure. So we certainly have seen an increase in violence over the past few months, and it's difficult to know if the lack of coverage is because it's, it's as you say, just a, a steady drumbeat of minor atrocity rather than some you know, huge catalyzing event, or if the United States just has Iraq fatigue and just doesn't want to hear about this regardless of what happens. But nonetheless, um, we, we have had this large-scale... Um, Al-Qaeda offensive against Iraq, and that's what it is. I, I sometimes object to calling this sectarian, although that's that's strictly true. Al-Qaeda um, is attacking primarily sec- their sectarian opponents in Iraq, but not exclusively, um, as a, a rough, you know, big hand wave measure. I tell people that about 70% of the al-Qaeda violence is directed against Shia civilians, and often in really horrific ways, schoolyards, parks, weddings, funerals, um, any place where there's a large gathering of civilian Shia, uh, marketplaces, uh, their mosques, etc. 
Uh, about 20% of the violence is directed against the Iraqi government, um, against police posts and symbols of Iraqi government authority, you know, their buildings and the, this type of thing. And about 10% is against al-Qaeda's non-sectarian opponents, against moderate fellow Sunnis who don't share the al-Qaeda extremist ideology. So it's also very hazardous to be a relatively moderate Sunni in Iraq, particularly the group that we call variously the Sawa or the Awakening or the Sons of Iraq, the group of Sunnis who flipped during you know, what Americans called the surge in 2006 and seven, who turned against al-Qaeda, um, betrayed, from al-Qaeda's perspective, their former allies, and allied themselves with the United States during that period. So, again, mostly against Shia civilians, but the government of Iraq and the moderate Sunnis are also on the end of this offensive. So why is this happening sort of now? I mean, by now, I mean over the last several months. There seems to be this marked uptick in, in violence. But certainly it's been building over time. This, is, this has been building over the last two years, but it certainly has reached a crescendo this last couple months. Um, I've written and said I think there, there are four reasons that this is happening right now. Um, the first is that al-Qaeda has been regenerated by the people who were released out of U.S. custody when we left. When we left in 2011, we released a lot of what we called the security detainees, the people that we knew more or less or had intelligence that they were al-Qaeda operatives or, or something related to that, but we didn't have anything on them that would stand up in a court of law. And so we just we had to let them go when we left. So that reseeded Al Qaeda. They got back a bunch of their mid, even mid, not very senior, but me, mid and kind of minor senior. And these um, and these people just people back in. These people, yeah, these, no problem. Were, were yeah, under American uh, custody. They were in U.S. custody. US custody. The U.S. military custody. So when we left at the end of 2011. Um, you know, our choices essentially were to ship them to Guantanamo, which we did not want to do, certainly didn't want to put more people into that system, um, or hand them over to the Iraqis. And, but I think we knew that there was no sense in handing them over to the Iraqis because there was no legally admissible evidence against these people. We knew they were bad, but we had nothing that would stand up in a court of law. So we turned them all loose. And that reseeded al-Qaeda. And I think it probably took, you know, six to 12 months for them to get reintegrated back into the organization, get retrained, get put out. But a year later, I think we saw the effects of that. So that's one. Uh, the second is that the Iraqis just aren't as capable at pushing down a al-Qaeda based offensive like America's Joint Special Operations Command was, you know, the Delta Force, the SEAL Team 6. Um, they've been running around Iraq for a long time, and the highly tuned intelligence system that backed them up, um, they were really able to be pretty surgical against these al-Qaeda cells. And a cell would pop up, and we'd pull out not only it, but trace back the people that they were talking to, find their financiers, find the people who were directing it. JSOC got very, very good at that, particularly in the Iraq context. Uh, the Iraqis, by contrast, are you know they're not a they're not a first world army. They're a you know a second tier army, very nascent institution. Um, it takes twenty, thirty years to build an army in the best of situations to a to a really high level of competence. 
And they're just not there. And as I tell people, the Iraqis now are essentially fighting al-Qaeda the same way that the Americans did in 2003, 2004, 2005, meaning not very well, just going up and rounding up the usual suspects um, and bringing them in, as, as again, as Americans did before they figured out how to do this. Mm-hmm. So that's two. Um, the third is Syria. Um, for a couple of reasons. I was wondering uh, if there was a connection there, so I'm glad you brought There's that up. absolutely a connection. So al-Qaeda in Iraq now calls itself al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria. They've kind of unified those two countries into one front and merged the major al-Qaeda franchise. There are others. If you follow Syria, you know about al-Nusra. They, they really don't matter in the Iraq context, so I won't talk about them again. But Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria is now running major offensives in both countries. So, one, Al-Qaeda now has sanctuary in Syria. So Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the Al-Qaeda in Iraq emir, the director, is in northern Syria. We know this. We have good intelligence that he's there. And where he's at is pretty isolated from any threat. He is planning, he's training, he's recruiting, um, he's gathering money. Um, he's doing all his activities with uh, you know, relative uh, peace of mind because no one's going after al-Qaeda in Syria. So that's one piece. They have sanctuary. And second, there's a lot of bleed over of money, of financing, there's a lot of um, Gulf state money that is going to the Syrian resistance broadly, but a large piece of that is going to the extremist groups, al-Qaeda and al-Nusra. And not all of that money stays in Syria. A lot of that money, a lot of those weapons bleed their way over into Iraq. Is there – I mean uh, – you know- to the extent you hear often, I should say that the um, conflict in Syria, you know, to the extent that it has taken, you know, sectarian um, dimensions, sort of heightened the sectarian uh, tensions across the region. So, is there? I mean, is one spillover effect from Syria to Iraq perhaps a greater tolerance of uh, amongst maybe sort of Sunni population of attacks on on Shia in Iraq? You're lighting right into my fourth point. Um, there's, uh-huh. there's certainly increased passive Sunni support in Iraq for al-Qaeda, and I think that has two, two root causes. I think what first is the, the bleed-over effect from Syria. I think there's an increased awareness of sectarian tensions. There's also awareness that there's a whole lot of Sunnis in Syria. Syria is a majority Sunni country, whereas Iraq is a minority Sunni country. And so I think there are some Sunnis who draw some aid and comfort for this. Um, this is then plays into, I think, the second factor, which are internal Iraqi factor, um, factors. There's bitterness about the 2010 election um, in Iraq in which technically the Sunni bloc got the most seats, and then through parliamentary maneuverings, Prime Minister Maliki was able to put together enough votes to form the government. Um, I call what happened in 2010 in Iraq their version of the 2000 Bush v. Gore election. Um, and, and actually, have like I think a large kind of population run. of disaffected, uh, you know, disaffected populace. That's absolutely right. And then there's been some major, there's been some prominent arrests of some Sunni political leaders over the last year that I think has then just continued to reinforce that. So I guess looking at, at sort of these, this sort of 
multitude of, of, of sort of factors that are feeding into this increase in violence. I mean, first you see this as resolving itself anytime soon. I mean, it seems that things are only getting worse. Uh, you know, I was looking at UN figures, the, the death toll from September exceeded the death toll from August and August exceeded the death toll from July. Uh, I mean, right. is, is this getting, I mean, will this get much worse before it can get better? Uh, things can always get worse. Um, my, I, I still have some limited optimism that things could improve, and I, I base that on two things. The first is, um, as the visit from Prime Minister Maliki this week to the United States is reinforcing, the Iraqis are realizing that they have a real problem here and that they have a capability gap, and they've come asking for the right things. They've realized that to fight a terrorist group like al it's an intelligence war. Um, you have to know who the bad guys are and how you pull them out. It's um, you know not unlike the you know the FBI unraveling an organized crime family. You know you 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 know there are you know there are organized crime families that are living among otherwise you know perfectly law-abiding populations, and you have to carefully untangle them and pull them out and arrest the right people without upsetting the population in which they live. Um, so that's one. And the second is we've, we've got an election coming up in April. And again, since I think that a lot of this bitterness comes from the 2010 election, if we have a more clear-cut result in 2014, I think that might cut into the passive Sunni support. Um, if we see, for example, a, a Shia bloc that clearly brings a one of the Sunni blocs into the government, so the Sunni population clearly sees real representation inside the newly formed government, and that could go a long way. So I guess currently in, in Iraqi politics, so, so the, the Shia bloc is dominant. Uh, is the Shia bloc more or less unified? So the Shia bloc is, right now. <laughs> so, so is, I mean, does representation in parliament generally just sort of fall along sectarian lines? Uh, more or less, yes. I mean, there's there's all types of internecine fighting among the Shia blocs. You know, the Maliki state of law, um, the Hakim's um, Iski or Skiri, what used to be called Skiri yeah. is now called Iski. Wow, that's, that's Iranian a blast affiliated. From, uh, blast from the past, Skiri. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're still there. They're back, still there. From back. In the um, and then the Sadrus. Yeah. Another, 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 another blast from the past. There, exactly, huh. exactly. So those are the three major Shia blocs, and, and there's a lot of infighting between them. But when push comes to shove, if there's a what they perceive as a threat to their population, they'll usually unify. Okay, uh, so I guess then um, the uh, so and, and the Sunnis right now are just sort of generally excluded from government because of this sort of Shia cohesion. Um, it's partially because of the Shia confusion and part of because the Sunnis really do seem to have just bad politicians. Um, they were all unified in one block that they called Iraqiya that was led by uh, a politician named Ayat Alawi who had been the prime minister for a time. Um, he's proven to be singularly um, incompetent in, in binding the Sunni together and to, to maximizing the game. I mean, they do have a big block of seats. They don't seem to be able to do very much with it. Um, so it might be interesting to see what happens in the next election. I think we'll see the Sunni run in not one block, but two or three blocks. And I, I fully expect that at least one, if not two of those blocks, will then be brought into any government, whether it's 
no matter which, which block actually wins. And uh, I'm relatively hopeful that we'll see some, a, a better outcome then for the Sunni to see real representation in the government. But yeah, I guess even if that if that is the case, uh, you were making you know the, the the case earlier that really this violence is driven by Al Qaeda. It's not like they can be as easily bought off by this kind of politics and, and sort of no. political horse trading. Um, no, they're 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 not going to get bought bought off. I mean, Al Qaeda has to be. I mean, you know, as they say in the westerns, there there are some folks who just need killing, you know, and these are people who strap explosives to themselves and go blow themselves up. You you, you know, there's. You can't negotiate with someone who feels that way about their political aims. So they need to be they need to be taken out, and we so we need to see better capability for the Iraqis. And conversely, I think very soon we're going to get to the point where someone's going to decide that something has to be done about the Al Qaeda safe havens in Syria. And so I, mean, I guess, like, so so name names, <laughs> who who is going to be doing the doing there, and 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 be you know going after the the safe havens in Syria, as you say. Um, it would not surprise me to see you know if if some organ if if all of a sudden people in Syria started Al Qaeda operatives and camps in Syria started going away because someone is flying drones overhead. Right. Um, I, I guess maybe that that sort of. That raises an interesting point in that, you know, to the extent that, you know, Russia and the USA are unified on Syria, it is in opposition to the al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. And you wonder if, if, if there might be cooperation uh, on, you know, between the Russia, Russians and the United States on, on that front. I, uh, I think that's clearly the case. I think, we, uh, I think we're starting to see consensus opinion come together that the al-Qaeda safe havens in Syria may well pose a greater threat to stability even than Assad himself, which, which doesn't mean any of us like Assad, um, but there's a difference between really bad and, and god-awful. Um, so I wanted to maybe uh, ask you um, about sort of Iran's role in, in all this. So, so as we're seeing this U.S. as sort of tentative American rapprochement with Iran, what consequences – might sort of that potential rapprochement have on Iraq, if, if any, or on U.S. policy towards Iraq, if any? Um, certainly, Iran is not a, a helpful factor from the perspective of the U.S. relationship with Iraq. Um, I, I tend to be a, a little more sympathetic towards poor Iraq on this point. You know, you know, Iran isn't going anywhere for them. You know. It, they're, they're going to have to live in that neighborhood forever. And so they have to reach a, a reasonable modus vivendi with Iran. Um, and they can't contest them on everything. And it seems to me that often U.S. policy expects the Iraqis to contest the Iranians on just about everything. So it will be interesting to see how if, if United States and Iran start to grow closer together and there are fewer issues of contention between the U.S. and Iran, that this might help U.S.-Iraqi relations as kind of a, 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 a trickle-down effect almost. And maybe sort of lastly uh, on, on Iraq, I guess how has the, the sort of the Kurdish region sort of handled this um, you know, this this sort of spike in violence. I mean, from what I gather, I mean, the, the violence is, is much less pronounced uh, in in sort of the you know the Kurdish regions than it is elsewhere. Are they sort of content to sort of 
let the Shias and Sunnis fight it out, or what? I guess how are they how are they contributing, or not to to sort of politics right now in in Iraq? Um, for the most part, they seem to be sitting it out. Yeah, they, they uh, the Kurdish region had one major attack, um, I believe, last month. Um, but that was that was unusual. That that was the first major attack they'd had in well over a year. It could be two. Um, my, my memory's failing me. But it's, it's been a long time since the Kurdish regions had a major attack, and its security situation is qualitatively different than the rest of the countries. Um, Kurdistan does seem to be keeping the rest of the country at arm's length in multiple senses, um, and, and certainly this um, al-Qaeda offensive is, is one of those. Um, so something you said earlier about sort of how um, sort of the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq um, sort of precipitated this increase in violence in part through the release of al-Qaeda detainees or potential al-Qaeda detainees. Now, I'm wondering sort of what you think that augurs for Afghanistan next year when the U.S. Is sort of begins its withdrawal in earnest. And, um, you know, to your knowledge, to your extent, it sort of has, you know, the, the United States learned how to withdraw better so as not to leave such a mess in its wake? Or is, is there, I guess, I guess, what do you expect to happen? And sort of, you know, I, I know that you have contacts inside the U.S. government. I mean, what uh, are they learning from, from, what's, from the Iraq experience right now? Or are all these issues at all comparable? Um, I think they are learning. And, um are continuing to learn. The Rand Corporation just released a, a major report on the the transition in Iraq and how that all happened and what the lessons learned were. And I know the U.S. government is looking at that report and, and other reports and other lesson learned documents very, very carefully. Um, on the other hand, the situation in Afghanistan is just so qualitatively different that it, it's hard to learn lessons in a lot of senses. Um, it's 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 just a horse of an entirely different color, a different situation, a different part of the world, um, different tensions between the groups. Um, in those places, in, in Afghanistan, most of the detainees we hold are Taliban, um, and we seem to be negotiating with the Taliban in some senses, and so their release certainly may be of a, of a different character. So I, I just wouldn't want to draw too many parallels between the two situations. They're They're just... I mean, aside from the place, aside from the fact that they're both Muslim and they both have an A in the in the name, there's not a lot of similarities between those two countries. So that's probably, uh, I mean, that that's to the extent that it can be, sort of somewhat comforting um, to to know that uh, you know that, that this sort of tragedy that seems to be that's befalling you know uh, Iraq right now might, is not necessarily destined to happen in Afghanistan. Well, I didn't. I didn't say Afghanistan might not have its own flavor of tragedy. It just won't be Iraq's. It's a. I, I didn't say that the transition was going to go well. I just said it won't unfold the way that Iraq did. Uh, so I wanted to sort of turn gears a bit and talk about you, uh, um, and ask sure. you. So how? I mean, how how is it that you've come to sort of spend so much time thinking and writing and and working on on Iraq were you sort of on the case before the war I know you served uh, in in the US military were you sort of thinking about working on Iraq prior to you know uh, the 2003 you know invasion and occupation 
I was not at, at all. I was accidentally drawn into all of this. I was teaching at West Point on uh, on 9/11. I'm a political theorist by training. Uh, my dissertation is on uh, Thomas Jefferson and his agrarian philosophy. So. You know, none of my academic training lent itself to the Islamic world at all. Although I was trained to think about big issues and how you um, how, how you think you, about things in a different way. Why? Why Thomas Jefferson? Oh, that's, you know, it's academia. My, you know, we my my dissertation advisor and I went through a bunch of topics, and we eventually reached a consensus that that's what I'd write about. Are you? It into, was fun. Are you into agriculture policy? Uh, no, not especially. No. Not especially. That was that was a long time ago. Ah. Um, at any rate, I, I taught at West Point, um, and then in 2004, I went to Iraq for the first time. I spent uh, m- most of my first tour in a little neighborhood of Baghdad called Qadamiyah, where I got my initial education in Shia politics. Um, Qadami is the religious district, and so all the major parties, the Sadrists, then Skiri, uh, the Badr Corps, Dawa, all had their representatives in Qadami, and I got to negotiate between all of them, move between all of them, see the differences. So I was fortunate in that sense to, to get a more political introduction to Iraq than perhaps um, some other people did. Although I certainly saw several battles. I went to Najaf Cemetery in August of 2004. I went to Second Fallujah um, in November of that year, but then came back to Baghdad for the first elections in February of 2005, and uh, then came back to the States. So you served in both the combat and political roles? Uh, yeah, you, you, I guess you could say that. And then went back for my second tour in late 2006. And uh, I'd written a little bit on counterinsurgency in the interim, had, had uh, immersed myself in that literature and, and thinking about what I'd seen in Iraq on my first tour related to um, my academic training and some of these, uh, these other books I'd been reading. So wrote a little bit on this, got to Baghdad, and then when uh, we started uh, you know, what eventually became the surge plan, um, first under George Casey in November and December of of 2006 into January, and then when General Petraeus came to town in uh, February of 2007, um, after we'd started this transition, uh, I got pulled into the you know, some of the strategy of how we were going to do all this and move forward. And I, I guess, I mean, would you say at that then that that you were successful? I mean, would would you sort of? I mean, it's sort of characterized for the surge as a success. I, I've, uh, I've I've written on this too. I think that the situation successfully resolved itself. I think that Americans may well take too much credit for what happened, and that there were a lot of inter-Iraqi dynamics that were also playing themselves out at the same time, and that in some ways we need to be a little more modest about what we brought about and what was just naturally occurring anyway. But regardless, certainly by the end of 2007, and certainly by the middle of 2008, let's say, the Iraq Civil War was decisively over. So I, I guess, you know, one of the, um, I think, big debates, big foreign policy debates sort of that result that, that, you know, were, that has, I think, resulted from sort of the surge in Iraq is sort of the place of counterinsurgency in sort of U.S. military policy. Um, you know, I, I think, I personally, I think I come from a skeptical view where I think we should not be getting into situations where we have to conduct counterinsurgencies in the first place because 
the, you know, bar for um, doing it well and doing it correctly is exceedingly difficult. Uh, and that, you know, chances are we will fail. Uh, so I, I'm wondering though, sort of right now, I'm wondering sort of how, how do you sort of see sort of counterinsurgency as part of, you know, U.S. grand strategy in the world? Should we be training, you know, mid-level, um, mid-career or early career U.S. Army officers in the principles of counterinsurgency? Um, I think so, just because, which is, which is not to say that I endorse doing another large-scale counterinsurgency operation anytime soon, like defined by like my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but um, those, those principles, of, you know, which, are, which are essentially common sense, you know, know something about the populations, understand that the, you know, the, if the population doesn't feel safe, they're going to behave in certain ways, and it might be to your advantage to make them feel safe, you know, totally aside from the humanitarian concerns involved, um, you know, that, that economics matters, that, um, you know, if people are living, you know, in, in sewage and with no power, they're more likely to resort to violence. Just some of these basic insights that counterinsurgency, that the, the, kind of the counterinsurgency turn brought to the fore are things that we should be careful not to lose. Um, that doesn't mean we should engage in this whenever possible. Um, and certainly when you're, you're asked to intervene in someone else's insurgency, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan are actually what we call third-party counterinsurgencies. You know, we're an outside power. There's a government that's fighting against an insurgency. So we're one removed from it. Um, it's not like we're fighting our own insurgents. We're fighting somebody else's. And if, if you get to the point where your insurgency is so bad that you need an outside power, it's in a pretty bad place in the first place, which is why the record for these third-party counterinsurgencies isn't very good because they've really metastasized by the time you get to that point. Um, that said, you never know when you're going to find yourself in that situation, and you don't want to be in the place where your army has to look to the president and say, well, I, you know, I don't care how much you want this option. We don't have the capability to do that. Um, you know, we should, you know, the army should be careful not to put itself in that situation where it's dictating to the political leadership this policy option is off the table because we no longer have the capability to do it. So I'm wondering, I mean, to what extent do you think that the sort of culture of the U.S. military has shifted or is shifting from one where it's sort of singularly focused on fighting and winning wars uh, to one that is sort of more about winning hearts and minds and, uh, you know, sort of doing that, that sort of counterinsurgency and applying those counterinsurgency principles. Has that shift sort of already happened? Is it already complete? Uh, is it maybe like generational? I would imagine maybe like younger officers are more that have sort of grown up in the culture of hearts and minds might be sort of more willing to accept that as part of, you know, their job than say older generals uh, who sort of grew up in a different era. Um, yes and no. Certainly, certainly that's true. That the the older generals, um, you know, particularly those who came to Iraq and Afghanistan as generals, um, have a, a much different, you know, and so therefore spent you know the first twenty five years of their lives doing traditional army stuff, fighting big wars, you know, as I used to say, blowing up moving metal things is you know the favorite pastime of the army. Um, that's what the, that's what it does well. That's a cleaner form of war, um, as wars go. Um, the army likes that. 
Now, there is a younger generation that you know, knows this, you know, more hearts and minds, more, you know, let's you know, armed social work, as some people have called it, um, form of warfare. You know, on the other hand, you know, if young, young people don't join the Army because they want to do social work, whether armed or not, you know, if they wanted to do social work, they'd be social workers. Um, people join the Army because they have a taste for, you know, fighting wars, for being in organizations that do this type of thing. You, you hate to put it, but, you know, all organizations recruit people who kind of want to do the core competency. You know, if you don't like being in embassies, you're probably not going to join the State Department. You know, if you don't like making fee- people feel better in far-flung countries, you're not going to join the Peace Corps or USAID. Um, but, you know, there is a recruitment bias. And people who join the Army tend to see problems as things to be resolved by force, just because of who we recruit. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's, that's interesting. I mean, that that's, um, kind of pushes against what I would think is sort of like a millennial approach to the U.S. military. But, but uh, you know, I, I definitely take your point. And I, I, I think you're, I don't want to downplay the point you make. That certainly the experience of the last 10 years makes the younger generation, particularly those that's, you know, that's all they know. For someone of my generation, you know, I still spent the first 15 years of my Army career thinking about big wars. And it was only as we got to the last five that this new thing came about. For, you know, for example, the students I taught at West Point, you know, who were there on 9-11, that's, that's the only world they know. And that said, I still think there's going to be a reversion to wanting to address problems by armed force, just because that's, that's the cultural bias. You know, it's the way formations are organized. You know, armies are organized fundamentally to kill other armies not to distribute humanitarian aid, although it can do that just fine, but it's not what it's organized for. Um, so what, so now you're, you're at the new America foundation, my favorite. I'm at the uh, new America. Yeah. We, I mean, we skipped a few things in between. I, no, I left well, tell, tell me. So, so, yeah, so, so what you, you rotated out of Iraq? Yeah. I came out of Iraq and then went to work for Doug Lute at the national security okay. council, uh, at the white house. Um, and then bridged the two administrations. So I was there for about the last nine months of the Bush 43 administration and then stayed on for six months into the Obama administration to help with the Iraq transition. And Lute also, he, he, he straddled both administrations, didn't he? Uh, he straddled them for a long time. Yeah. He just left there in, in August. So he transitioned from running Iraq and Afghanistan, and then once we did the Iraq transition and his Iraq team, me among them all left government. Well, we all left the White House. I left government altogether. Others went back to other agencies, and that Iraq team dissolved. Um, Doug took over responsibility for Afghanistan and Pakistan. So really, I mean, that, I mean that's so the, the, the changes in bureaucracy, I think, are, are probably reflective of sort of the lowering, the, the decreasing importance of Iraq in U.S. foreign policy. I mean, there no longer was this Iraq team, as you said. Uh, That's right. And was, now, I mean, there were still a few people working Iraq, but they were embedded in the, you know, the larger Middle East Bureau. They were no longer, uh, you know, a special reporting agency that essentially talked directly to the president about Iraq. Yeah, I mean, and so, Instead, which is, I think, a reflection of the decreasing relevance of, of Iraq. Um, absolutely. You know, and so, I mean, that, which, which is, I think, telling uh, as well. And one would expect the same thing will happen, you know, two years after the last troop pulls out of Afghanistan, that the same thing will happen, that all the, you know, that 
pretty abruptly, it seems, um, the uh, sort of, you know, White House will no longer sort of have these kind of daily, you know, have that sort of standing daily attention to uh, to Afghanistan as well. Almost almost certainly. And this is this I think this is hard for sometimes the political leaders in that country to realize is the only reason you're getting paid attention to is because there's tens and scores of thousands of U.S. troops here. And but for that, you would not be getting that attention. I think sometimes that's lost on the political leaders of these countries. Yeah, and so you wonder. I mean, the the sort of status of forces agreement that really wasn't agreed to between Iraq and and Afghanistan, between Iraq and the United States. You wonder right. if the political leaders of Afghanistan will see that and be like, you know, if we have a few thousand American troops left over here, maybe they'll, you know, maybe we can still, maybe we can still get the president or at least the vice president on the phone when we call. Uh, maybe. Uh, on the other hand, that's that's often very hard to sell to your population. Um, you know, that's 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 the problem. Of, you know, I mean, the reason uh, obviously I know the Iraq case better. The, you know, the reason we couldn't get a status of forces agreement in Iraq was because it had to be voted on by their parliament. Um, every other status of forces agreement we have in the Middle East is is secret and is just done by you know the president or prime minister or you know king or whoever they have. He just signs it and sends it to us, and the people of his country never see it. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the way we set up the constitution in Iraq, um, it had to be voted on by the you know by the parliament, or else it wasn't legally binding. Um, that's a good thing, I think, in the long term for democratic development in Iraq. It's it's. But uh, but in this particular instance, it kind of hung us out to dry in this you know, particular case. Interesting that that um, Constitution of Iraq provides a good segue to uh, your work in the New America Foundation because I was at the New America Foundation early in my career uh, in two thousand and three right. uh, when it okay. was a small operation. There, I was a research assistant to among other uh, to among others Noah Feldman, who at the time was helping to write the Iraq Constitution um, in uh, in sort of his in contribute to that in in his own way. Um, so I knew America has obviously grown is huge now. Uh, what sort of, what sort of research are you working on there? What's, what's your focus? Uh, and you know, what, what are you up to now and, and sort of how can we read your work? Um, well, I'm a non-resident fellow at New America. I, I don't pretend I'm here 40 hours a week. And, and I, I like to disclaim this. I mean, I, I work for a small consulting firm that has offices here in D.C., in Beirut and Baghdad. And I, I do have financial interest in Iraq, and I like to make that clear to people when I talk about Iraq so, you know, they can take that into account. Um, you know, always disclaim your conflicts of interest. So that's what I primarily do. But I'm here at New America, and I help cover, uh, you know, again, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, post-conflict reconstruction, counterinsurgency, small wars, also do some work on grand strategy, um, you know, what's, uh, you know, what, what's uh, future foreign policy, future conflict going to look like, uh, the future of the Army, future of ground forces, things of that nature. Small questions. Yeah, little questions like yeah. that. Um, great. And so do, do you have like a regular outlet that we can, I can point readers to follow or how can we, how can we follow your, uh, you know, the, 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 every, everything I write, I write for a number of outlets. Um, I do things, you know, for new America proper. Um, I just wrote my first piece for a blog called war on the rocks. That's kind of young and edgy and, and publishing some interesting people. Um, I've written for foreign policy. So the best way is just to, to follow my Twitter at, at 
capital yeah. D Douglas, capital O Olivant. Um, everything I write gets posted there. And actually, New America is usually pretty good about yeah. uh, making sure it gets uh, up. My my web page on at New America gets updated too, so they keep a running tally of what I've written. Well, I'm so glad we could speak, um, and I, I I hope you speak to other media outlets as well, because you know, again, I, this is just deserves so much more attention than it's getting for so many reasons, uh, and just the violence seems unrelenting, and it's. Really, I'm glad that you were able to help put this into some context and, uh, you know, share your insights with me and everyone else out there. So thank you so much, Douglas. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to help. I mean, Iraq really is an important country. I actually think its future is pretty bright just, just because it has so much money that I think eventually it's going to be able to buy its way out of a lot of problems. So um, watch Iraq. It's going to be an important place. And I think in the long term, more actually more stable than most other places in that region. It's gone through its democratic transition. Uh, lots of other places still have that in front of them. So this is this is a, a rough patch in an otherwise, you know, better, trans, you know, bright future. I would go long on Iraq, um, but yeah, the next five years could be bumpy. Well, thank you to Douglas. Thank you all for listening. And I know I, I learned a lot and I was very glad to have this conversation, which again is, is timely considering just how far Iraq seems to be falling uh, these past few months. So check back soon. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or listen directly on UN Dispatch. And we'll see you back again. Bye.